I'm Catherine Lambrecht. I'm with the, uh, I do programs for the Highland Park Historical Society. So our program tonight um, is with uh, Ravinia Music, Under the Stars, and Around the World. And it's an archives access project courtesy of the Illinois Secretary of State, which I'm sure Nancy is going to likely explain. Um, Nancy is the archivist of the Highland Park Archives and Local History Collections at the library, which was donated from the Historical Society to to the city. It's housed at the library. Nancy's the archivist and the Historical Society sort of oversees the project in general. So I'm going to turn it over to Nancy, who will then introduce Steve Gianni, who's the project archivist for the Ravinia Park Collections. Turn it over to you, Nancy. Thank you, Catherine. Um, I'm going to mute everybody and I'm going to share my screen. And uh, first, I want to welcome everyone here. Thank you for coming. And yes, um, This project is under a broad spectrum. It represents multiple collections in multiple places. The nucleus of the collection came from historical societies collecting efforts in the 60s and 90s with um, a retired manager, a widow of a retired manager from Highland Park, Ravinia, and um, Mr. Freeling. And it is now housed at the library, but it also included the unprocessed, which by unprocessed as archives, um, um, uncatalogued materials at Ravinia, and that was Steve's. Guillaume's job to do. Um, we worked with the CSO, we worked with the Newberry, and um, to bring together uh, groups of items to digitize, to make available with the wonderful, the funding from the Illinois Secretary of State. So Jesse White serves also as the state librarian, state archivist, and we get the funding to digitize these collections is and other collections that we have in Highland Park comes from the state, and we're grateful for their ongoing support. I know, I know I am. Um, so in a sense, so I work for both the society and the library and, um, but this was strictly, these monies go to public libraries. So the funding went to the library and we shared it with Ravinia and um, the historical society shared all the work they'd done over the years, putting things together. And that's all about under the stars. So um, I didn't find a really great picture. So I decided I couldn't find a really good picture of stars in our collection but this is a lovely picture by local photography, Jesse Lowe Smith taken in May of 1910 of shooting stars in Northwood Highland Park, beautiful flowers um, for the landscape that people embraced so much as they settled here. And I also, I remember, we wanna remember first, before um, Highland Park, before Illinois, there were people that lived here, um, Native Americans. And this part of the country, Ravinia Highland Park was not part of the United States until the three tribes, the Chippewas, Ottawas, and Potawatomi Indians ceded it to United States. And I'm sharing this treaty image for a couple of reasons. It's very important, it, you know, the steps that we took to become where we are today, but because it's from the treaty collection at the National Archives, and it, it is the National Archives granting arm, the NHPRC, that made the archives program possible in Highland Park. And we are pretty sure they're going to help us develop the um, Ravinia Archives program. And so, again, with great support from national level and state level. And um, this is other things they do, too, sharing information with people. After 1833, we have Deerfield Township. And I'm going to I'm not going to talk. This is not linear. And I'm not going to talk a lot about archivy, but I'm going to bring in some little points that are helpful for people, that, the researchers out there and for people that don't know Ravinia history. I know many of you do. Um, so Deerfield Township was renamed Moraine Township in, in the end of the 20th century. 
And sometimes it's kind of confusing because we have Deerfield, the city, we have Deerfield Township, which doesn't exist anymore, but everything's labeled Deerfield, we have Deerfield High School. But if you look at the map, you can see we have Highland Park, we have Ravinia, and this is from the 1840s, and Ravinia did not join or next to Highland Park until 1899. And if you look closely down the bottom, you can see the Daggett Farm. And Daggett was an English immigrant, and it was he, he sold land to the railroad, and he sold land to Ravinia for Ravinia to develop that. And we're going to jump forward to 1909, and um, I wanted to show the whole map here. So it was at the very bottom, there's Ravinia Park over the tracks. Now, Mr. Daggett still has a little bit of farm surrounding Ravinia, but not for much longer. And so Ravinia Park is established, and by this point, this is all part of Highland Park. So we have two railroads, as you may know, coming through. And we have the kind of the tracks that are now that are Metra, that were steam engines, Chicago Northwest. And we have kind of what was the upstart Chicago-Milwaukee Railroad. And this is a 1906 map of the railroad that stops in Ravinia. And it is the Chicago and Milwaukee Railroad that purchases the land um, in Ravinia, now Highland Park, to create an amusement place. And what they're doing, of course, is building traffic on for their people to buy tickets. And they're competing, of course, with the steam engines. And this is, in fact, from a railroad, Chicago North. It later became the North Shore. For those of you who are familiar with the electric railroad, it was called the Chicago Milwaukee. Eventually, in its last days in 63, it was the North Shore. And this is from a railroad periodical showing what they have at Ravinia, the places you can go. And it was framed in, in the Ravinia room. Um, and there's, you know, there was music, there's a casino, there's a theater, there's baseball. Lots of things. They're saying people get on the railroad, come and join us. So then we have, they have a park. So two, for two years, they're building the park. And we know from this um, um, affiche, this, this poster, they did not intend to name it Ravinia. They were looking for another name. And um, O.P. Sison, as far as I can tell, was very short-lived at Ravinia. I think if I track the right person, he's Oscar. He was a director and producer. And um, so this contest really didn't go anywhere. And um, Mr. Sison didn't stay. From what I can tell, Ian, he died in the Elgin Insane Asylum in 2007. The contest did not change. They decided to keep the lovely name of Ravinia and develop a park, which was to, they really wanted people come. So they opened in 1904. And this is the beginning of music and entertainment. And you see, notice, um, at the time, Highland Park was dry. So when prohibition changed, it didn't change that much. But they emphasized entertainment, vaudeville, high class society, and come and drink, not drinks, but soda. Um, and watch baseball on the train. And I have a review here from the Chicago Tribune from the day it opened. And it, it says um, they had, it was well received. And this, I also want to share this letter. This is not from the Rubini collection. This is from the city records of Highland Park. So Mr. Frost, whose idea this was and president of um, the railroad company invited the luminaries of Highland Park. It's to come the fire marshal the city council and come to this a wonderful event of opening um rod opening ravinia so there he they came and the tribune said ravinia park the new north shore amusement resort just completed for the chicago milwaukee electric railway was open last night with a presentation of vivian Pappas by blanche ring and if you you're interested in that play it is available on google books in an archive and it tells the play was given the park theater a large number and in, the park occupies 40 acres of land just south of Highland Park. Its principal buildings are theater, seating 1,010 persons, a casino, a stadium where athletic presents, and vaudeville programs will be given daily. 
Box holders at the theater last night were Mr. and Mrs. W.A. Alexander, one of the Exmoor founders of Highland Park, Colonel S.R. Whithall of Fort Sheridan, Gardner Van Ness of Chicago, and F.W. Cushing of Highland Park. So, of course, Highland Park was not yet part of Chicago as geographic boundaries change, as we all know. And so there we have the city and the um, park working together. And this lovely box is part of our collection. That was it, it's from the teens, and it's the, um, the ticket box. And we know it's from the teens because um, it says Bennett Griffin uh, manager, and he was manager of the teens in the heyday and the time when Ravinia was all about opera stars. And um, it, this box is in our collection too, and is photographed and on the digital Illinois Digital Archive. The Illinois Digital Archive is a pro is actually um, a product of many states and many organizations working together. And everything on these images, I'm just going to switch quickly so you can see, um, is goes on the DP the Digital Library of America and be searched and can be found. So people can use all these things from our collections, and um, so that is why they have that. And I'm gonna lose that tab now. So we have um, an engaging park starting up and people coming and they're really saying people come and come and have a leisure time in Highland Park. And this is along the track. These are Illinois roses, again, um, from our photographic collection. Ravinia Park, in addition to offering music and opera and bringing all kinds of groups of people in, is offering leisure and amusements. And uh, people come in on the train and there's some shows the tracks. And I like to show those because it is, we have these glass slides from the electric railroad, which are very interesting and show us how the railroad developed and went through Highland Park. And as if you are not aware, it is now the bike path. And this picture is from 1924. So many people came to use the park, the high schools, the baseball teams. And this is a picture of high school students from Highland Park High School. And you, um, I'm not sure if they're doing a tennis play on the back of the photo. It says tennis, anyone, or if they're playing tennis. But you might recognize some names here. Um, Jay Bornique was um, a World War I veteran from Highland Park who, who perished in the war. Queenie Spencer was the brother-in-law of um, King Edward's wife, what, Lady Wallace, something like that. And um, so she was here visiting Highland Park. And William Krieger um, was a young man who was also World War I. And we have some of his letters in our collection saying, I'm damn glad to be alive and happy to survive the war. And there he is. And um, so there were lots of plays. Ravinia allowed itself to be used for many groups of people, as well as baseball. And if you noticed in that earlier announcement, it said a, a game with the baseball Browns. Now, we don't have any pictures of the Browns, unfortunately. So this is, these are the Highland Park Crescents. They played frequently at Ravinia Park. And um, if you're interested, they're semi-pro. And before they were, they were existence before Ravinia Park and their existence after. And um, the park district of Highland Park was founded in 1909. So the Ravinia, the, the, the baseball park really gave um, folks and these groups of young athletes a place to play. And um, play they did and in the baseball stadium. Now, also, as I mentioned, the, the Ravinia to this day, it serves as a graduation place and for other entertainments during the years. And um, we're going to digress a little bit again into names. Now, you'll see it says A Night Off by DSHS Alumni Association at the Ravinia Theater, um, April 28, 1916. The high school you know may know as Highland Park High School was originally named Highland Park High School in, um, in, 19, in 1890. It changed its name to Deerfield High School. And to recognize that it was encompassing this whole township in 1904, it changed its name to Deerfield Shields 
because it included so many students from Shields Township north of Highland Park. And until 1936, when they separated again, in 1950, when there's a new Deerfield High School, it stayed these various names until it reclaimed its name in 1936 of Highland Park High School. And the now extant Deerfield High School is part of the same district, but not the same school. So when people are researching, we always have to kind of clarify it. And when you're looking through things, it's, it's helpful to know when you see Deerfield, you see Deerfield Shields. So they are, in fact, talking about Highland Park. And this is one of, um, this is not actually from our collection. Um, I just wanted to share it, but it is online and with our other archivist colleagues from the Chicago History Museum. This is Albert Corey. In 1906, the second Chicago Marathon started and has continued for several years. It would start in Ravinia Park and would go to Grant Park. And it was... Um, funded and supported by the Illinois Athletic Association, which no longer exists. But Mr. Corey was a Frenchman. He he should have won the gold medal in the 1904 Olympics because um, the gold medal winner took strychnine and cheated. But this is Mr. Corey um, at the um, marathon getting ready to run from Ravinia Park to Grant Park is another one of the community events that were held here in, in that Ravinia. So they really, it, it became part of a community part of our, of Highland Park. So most famously, we talk about opera, the golden age of opera took place in Highland Park. Highland, the Ravinia changed names, like many institutions, um, several times. And by the 19-teens, it was a group called the Ravinia Company, and they really emphasized opera. They had um, Aida, um, and from 1918, actually even earlier, till 1931, really a stable of opera players. They often stayed at the local hotel, Moraine. I have pictures, I know I see many pictures from, um, from not from Ravinia, but there's pictures of the opera singers in the parades. And um, we have pictures, and this is one of the pictures in our collection that was digitized. It's, um, I don't know who Enza Piketty is. It's a, it's a big family name in Highland Park, but he donated these autographed pictures he collected from opera stars in Highland Park, and this is Florence Macbeth, one of the last years before the Depression, and she sang many, many years, a famous American opera singer and um, in in operas and in Ravinia, and that's, um, and I've had several people do research. We've answered several questions of people like, when did she sing, what did she sing in Ravinia? So um, we're happy to have that online on the Illinois Digital Archive. And um, as it wouldn't be complete, um, if, if, so for those of you who are not aware, Orson Welles lived in Highland Park as a teenager. And when he was just 13 years old, he was writing a column in the Highland Park News, reviewing the opera. And he, he was 13. You know, 13-year-olds can be kind of grandiose, and he's Orson Welles. And he was very critical. But it's still, it's fun. Someone had taped this review on top of this 1928 Ravinia program. And um, it, and he all through 1928 he was reviewing, and I just to show you um, online and with the pandemic it slowed things down a little bit, and the fact that we were so fluid in bringing people together for our collection. So the state's a little behind too on things, but if you go to the um, Illinois Digital Archive and page down, you can look and you can search all these programs from these opera years and um, and the people love the ads, the Nash. Um, and um, one of the most time-intensive processes in a digital project with text is what's called optical character recognition because after the image or the item is captured, you have a picture. And then if there's text in it, you convert it through this process, which has really improved over the decades. And then 
you have the text, which is within the document. However, it's not always accurate, and um, especially when there's different fonts and columns. So that's one of the more time-consuming things that we do. And in our previous grant, someone else was doing it most of it. During the pandemic, I think that's what I spent the bulk of my time to do was verifying to make sure that things read correctly. And you can see um, one of the big things, one of the major ads I see year after year in the um, in the Ravinia ads is something called the Hamilton Institute, where they trained businessmen. So you, you see the name of Hoover, Hires Root Beer. Um, that that's not that's not the program. That's but people really everyone seems to truly enjoy looking at these old ads, and I myself included. Safety razors, ads for um, the time, the home, and what operas are playing, and you'll see really many. It just so happens paging down that this, this is the Maruf, um, the opera is not um, the man who wrote this. It, it's um, he collaborated with uh, not I just by chance, and I, I, he collaborated with the Nazis in France. In, in Paris, he taught at the Paris Conservatory. And I read um, the French composer, and um, during World War II, he didn't even wait for um, the Nazis to declare the Republic, French Republic over in the French state. Um, he went straight to the SS and gave him a list of all his Jewish students and Jewish musicians. Um, so I don't think we see him play too much anymore with you know, very good reason, but it's quite a popular opera at the time and played several summers. Generally, you see a lot of operas that we know, the standards, because they wanted to bring people in. You, you see Aida and um, Carmen, Cinderella, um, Romeo and Juliet. But sometimes I didn't recognize them, so I, I looked them up, and that was something I, I could indulge in and during the pandemic. And one of the favorite pieces that was almost every year seemed to be played, it was called Martha by Floto, a composer, um, an opera that's been not played played you know, played a lot recently, but I did listen to it as a great opera. It's Martha's Secret, and her secret is that she smokes. And and the last scene, and it's on YouTube as well, and you can see she's she's smoking with her, her husband because he discovers her secret that she smokes when they smoke together. I, I always quite thought that was quite amusing. Um, and yes, I quit, if you're going to ask, a long time ago. So opera, the golden age, and that didn't end completely with the depression and the end of the Rubinian company, but it was never an emphasis again. Um, but we do have these wonderful programs in me and dance always played a part, an important part of Rubinia, as you can see. And it, it's to, through the ages. This is Ruth Page, a very famous modern dancer. Ruth St. Dennis um, was often, and of course, often dance is combined with opera and music and otherwise in the 1960s, the New York City Ballet came here. We have a picture, and I never, I haven't got clearance from them because it's past post 64 to um, put it up. But we'd love to, and hopefully we will soon. As you know, also know that um, Tall Chief, Miss Tall Chief, um, a Native American dancer, lived in Highland Park. So we have these wonderful programs for Vinnie Park Engagement. Miss Ruth Dennis. A lot of people, some Russian refugees came and dancing. They had children dancing. Many programs featuring dance. It was a big part of Virginia Park. And, of course, music. Music is the linchpin of all this, I think, I hope. Um, and then here you see dance and music combined with the Chicago Symphony. And you see Ravinia Club, Ravinia Company. They were really the, the nucleus behind Ravinia. And you will find online here with... Um, Ravinia, there's many histories, many timelines that really that we are putting up there for your research so you can learn 
all about what happened, what dates, many histories written that have shared and people have allowed us to print. Now, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra has been playing in Ravinia many years since the beginning, but also in the early years, New York Symphony was here. Minneapolis Symphony was the resident orchestra one summer. And you can see all the people that all these years supported Ravinia as it changed hands and developed. And it changed hands several times, as I mentioned. Um, the Ravinia Company was found by residents of North Shore after it went into receivership. And when Ravinia came back after the Depression, um, and we've been this before, one thing, education is, is, is a big thing. They have the Stains Institute, which Steve is going to tell us about. And it's, it's very interesting, much more interesting fascinating than this. But they had these children's concerts, and um, the kids came free. There was a committee. They planted every year. They played um, Eric Lorraine. What's his name? Um, the assistant conductor of the Chicago Symphony conducted the Civic, and they had, you know, they said America's melting pot. No, you have to think this in perspective. This is the early 20th century, and melting pot, they mean Italian, French, Alsatian. Um, but you see a lot of standards, and the kids would have contests and name that tune, the basics you might hear a youth orchestra play today. And that continues today with, in a different way, though, with the Staines Music Institute teaching children and master classes. And one, uh, I don't know who put this together, but thank you to whomever did um, this resume of the Ravinia Festival and it's seasons 36 to 54. And in it, and again, it's online on the Illinois Digital Archive and will be on the Digital Library of America. It lists every composer by date, by composer, by artist which is very handy to have. Um, and you'll see, if you click on, you see you see lots of names. You see opera singers coming back from the early 20th century. Armand Tokachin, you see um, Lucrezia Bori, who were seen frequently in the early years. Um, one thing, and you can search it, and if you're searching IDA, you can search it. You can come up and find out if you're looking, when was this played? And we do get frequent questions in the archives for that. One tricky thing, again, with names, the um, transliterations of the Russian composers like Shostakovich and Tchaikovsky are transliterated in the old way. So you have to be aware, be, be aware of that, as probably most musicologists and music researchers are aware. And you see the, um, the great um, Misha Mishakov played at Ravinia in the early years. He uh, was eventually became concertmaster of Detroit Symphony. And I remember from my youth, he carried his um, violins around in bags for his best students to try out. And Shakespeare. Um, we'll talk a little bit about Shakespeare. In the earliest years, in the 1900s, when it was still operated by the railway, Ravinia Park had the Ben Greet Shakespeare Company come. It was a touring Shakespeare company, often with an orchestra, often New York. Um, and they did things like Midsummer's Night Dream, accompanied by Mendelssohn's music. It was very popular. And you can see these well-held people. You can maybe blow that up a little bit, walking in there. Have to walk over the tracks because they come in on electric, they have to walk over to the steam tracks. And um, this is a lower resolution. And again, I'm going to just a little of the process when we digitize things, it, unless they're born digital online, we capture them in a format that's highly stable, in this case called a master tip, but they're very large because they're composed of very complex bits and bytes. When we put them on these sites, whether it's um, the archives online catalog or the digital libraries. We put what's called JPEGs. We put the text in PDF and a little bit smaller. But if people do need, if, if you need something from anyone, the, the, we can really see clearly the, the type and what it says. We provide people with a high resolution because there's no way that they can be hosted on these sites. And we have these smaller but viewable 
items on the site and we are and whatever institution receives the grant for these funds from the state you are responsible for taking care of and the digital preservation of these masters so um it turns out in so in um in the 60s by when we came back from the depression there was a group called the Ravinia association which was managing Ravinia funding it and there's a big debate about whether or not to have Shakespeare again is it worth it and they went round and round their articles everywhere and they did and this is a fairly well-known poster so and even the New York Times there was all kinds of hullabaloo going on and one of the partners we worked with the Ravinia that someone in the associate had given many records including correspondence information about the art programs programs to the Newberry Library and they worked with us to digitize it so we have these letters especially with Mr. Freeling talking about how they're developing, what are we going to do? Because it, a lot of thought about what you present, you bring these stars at the, um, the Japanese conductor with the music director at the time, Azawi, Segway Azawi, I hope I pronounced that, I apologize if I'm not. Um, but they did have the Shakespeare and it's, it was successful, but I think there was so much debate between the board, it kind of um, lessened its impact somewhat. And um, and that's one thing I know. I people always tell me we need more pictures on um, on presentations. And I I could read like whole programs and programs and tell you because you know, I go that opera that ad that person, but um, the correspondence in the collection that Newberry digitized with us and um, helped us put on the the Illinois Digital Archive. Um, this correspondence from Stan Freeling, who of course he died just two years ago, 2019 in Highland Park. He really helped and made Ravinia um, succeed. And we can see this in his correspondence that's now online, how he's planning and thinking to move forward with Ravinia and um, make it what it is and, and what's gonna work, what's gonna not. They talk about food, they talk about everything. And um, so, um, and Mr. Freeling also was instrumental in um, with the Highland Park Historic Society in getting these artifacts preserved and in our collections and encouraging people to donate. So we have the things that we do in our, our Ravinia collection. And there's some more that I just, just thoughts and saying, what are we gonna do? And what's gonna be successful, what's not? The food, is it good, is it bad? We change it, do we bring in outside vendors? The kind of things that, you know, you talk about in management. Um, I had a picture of the Ravinia China and I don't see it because they did have, we have in, our, in the collection, and thank you probably to Mr. Freeling, I believe, that um, he donated this Ravinia China that they served at Ravinia, they used to serve in the restaurants in Ravinia. So they started some new programs in the, in the 1960s, art exhibits and sculpture, and it was really encouraged artists. And um, we have many photos, both in the collections from Highland Park and Ravinia that talks about the art exhibits and encouraging um, public art and space and encouraging artists. And it's really, um, quite revealing, I think. And again, you can explore these programs more online and that's why we did this. Um, but the train case, of course, came to an end and they built parking lots and changed. And that's nothing Mr. Freeling um, worked with, I believe. And so this is a map of, 19, again, going back to 1909. If you blow up, look clear at Romania, you can see um, where Vaudeville Theater, where the electric train came in, the baseball stand, the concerts. And so they kind of you know changed a little bit um, and added things, and it's it's big parking lot. And this was you know this is the function of the board to develop and make sure that this asset, valued asset, is retained and developed, and looks forward. And again, that was Mr. Freeling who did that you know a lot with the arts and the various um, endeavors he was involved with and funded. 
And um, I want to share this because, it's, again, it shows the Historical Society and the city and Ravinia Festival working together. They had a you know, whole bunch of events for the city centennial. And they shared the history. They created a timeline, which is also online. And um, I've seen different years for 101, 1901, for purchasing the land. But, you know, we know when it opened because it was a very public opening. And so these press releases have also been digitized so people can look at them and kind of put things in perspective for that. Um, and we also, you know, we've not just, in the, we have some um publications like this Edward Gordon profile and Mr. Gordon was the music director for many, many years. Um, I, I know I'm going along, but that's a few more minutes. Um, Highland Park and we have, you know, in Toto, we have this program. If you, I'm just going to kind of show you, go back and show you example again. And, um, you can search. The state is still working on this. They had some delays as well. Um, so, but everything is there. Um, we transferred our Ravinia postcards there. And you can search and you can search by text. You can see that the timeline I spoke about the various things, but um, so it's a program before Mr. Gordon retired. And it, you know, sometimes when we have things in folders too, people have clippings like the Orson Welles and we leave them in there because it really tells us a lot, excuse me, about what's going on and how the park is developing and what's happening and the people that put them together that saved these things and gave them to us. And two um, histories that are also um, online, I really was happy to share because I discovered this um, this paper and there's one in Newberry and I've seen it some other places. And this um, Bennett Singer wrote this at Highland Park High School in 1979. It's, it's not a bad paper at all. It's quite good. And he became a professional writer. And uh, when I were doing this project, you have to think about copyright. Some things are expired. Um, copyright is different. It's very complex for music, but for manuscripts and photos, you want to be conscious from a certain date and respect them. So I, I, I just looked him up and um, Mr. Bennett, Mr. Singer's a writer in New York. And he was say, yeah, you know, you can put it up there. So I'm happy we have that. It's a, a good paper written by a high school kid complete. And um, again, available here. If you just put um, micro, let's see, put Singer, but you'll see Harris paper. And again, I all these, these fun programs that we have now made available. It's interesting to see how the music, the, some of the earliest years, very basic, the kind of the standards you play in a youth orchestra, Tannhauser, Mr. Singer's, Dvorak's, pieces that I love, they're beautiful, they're wonderful, but they, they get a little more adventurous in, in different seasons and they kind of change and evolve to meet the, you know, both artistic, I think, and audience needs. There's always great debates. Janis Joplin was here when the jazz, oh, that jazz, that awful stuff, of course. And this is not this. We have some papers um, that again, this this woman Melissa Chorman, she um, did this when she was at Lincoln School, and again I was concerned because here's some women. I'm not going to put someone's materials online because you might think you can somebody do an archives 30 years ago and it's an archives people will see it, but everyone can see it if, when it's digitized online. And um, so I, I found her on Facebook and contacted her. I said, "What do you think?" And she was so happy. I said, "I, I wonder what ever happened to that." And so here's we have a history of a, a child of Romania, but I think I think it's nice nice to share that and and it's not scholarly. It, it, it's, it's just you know it's just kind of one of the fun things that we have here. She has these all these little drawings that she did, and I think there must have been a contest because there were a couple pictures. I did not hear back from everyone, and so I did not put up anything unless I knew the person. And she read a little park. How did it begin? And you know the timeline. We, I think pretty much everyone here. It was in now, you know. And she what about the merry-go-round and. 
So we have this beautiful art from artists, the covers, professional artists that is well known. We also have the art from the children and that we're studying the history and local history. So I'm going to kind of segue to Steve so we can talk a little about the program, the work he did at the Staines and um, the Staines Institute for Young Artists. And um, so I just, just wanted to brochure from the program, a very important program that they have at Ruvinia. But I also, I, I don't know, Jeff Stern, I don't know if you're here, Jeff, or not, but um, I knew people would ask. So I just thought I would include one from the fire in the 1940s, which devastated Ravinia. Um, not happy, but they um, they got tense and they had a season that year anyway. And I'm going to hand this over to Steve. But first, I really, Steve Gianni is um, the video technician for Ravinia Staines Music Institute. He's been working for 30 years. Excuse he me, was, my father reported the Ravinia fire. We lived oh, my God. We lived on Delta Road, and my parents were having a dinner party, and a guest looked through our picture window into the park, and she said, there's a flame over there. What is that? My father called the Ravinia Fire Department, and uh, we evacuated the house, and uh, the wind blew um, from the lake to the west. If the wind had blown from the west to the lake, Brayside would have been decimated. Oh, my and I saw the flames. I was five years old. I was put in a car at the end of Delta Road, uh, at the beginning of Delta Road at uh, Lincolnwood, and I saw the flames high in the sky. Ephraim Goldstein, and he was um, uh, footnoted in the Daily News report of the Virginia Fire. He reported it. Oh, well, thank you for sharing that. We have to talk more. You can stop by the library sometime, maybe. You can talk well, about I'm living it. in New York. <laughs> well, then, then I don't think you'll be stopping by the library. But we'd like, to, I, we should just, we should talk about this. It's a very interesting story. So Steve, um, he kind of fell into this project when we got this grant. And usually, and, and it works, when you do digitize archives, you want to describe the collection, survey, know what you have, have it described and cataloged, and then select. You can make it a choice. Now, we didn't do that because of various reasons. And so Steve got a full basement of stuff and this, that, the other thing, and dug right in. Um, and he worked at the Northbrook, Northbrook Public Library for more than 35 years as managing librarian of the multimedia department. And prior to those positions, he was television producer director in the Chicago area, where he earned an ACE award for music television programming. During that time, he conducted an interview with Motown legends Martha Reeves and the Vandalas at Ravinia. One year later, in a true 15 minutes of fame moment, he was recognized by lead singer Martha Reeves in a crowded lobby of Atlantic Theater where they're performing. And, and, and Steve has just done so much work because instead of taking a collection and sending it off to the vendor, digitizing it and uploading it and doing that, he said to go through and relabel it and find things. And we had a lot of fluidity we're going to digitize this. We're going to digitize that. No, there were changes. Things were available. Things weren't available. But he's just um, done a great job with that. I'm going to show you this one more time, our pages, in um, really helping to develop what's going to be collections and collaborations between organizations. So thank you, Steve, so much. Okay. Thank you, Nancy. Uh, it's been uh, a lot of fun working on this project, mainly because um, having worked at with the Staines Institute for 30 years, just as the uh, video um, technician, uh, basically what I'm doing is I'm directing all of the um, programs that happen in the Staines Institute throughout the year, uh, mostly in the summer, of course, uh, a few things in, in the winter, if they had like a special concert or something. You know, I would uh, direct these videos, take the tape, hand it to the production assistants that were part-time uh, students, 
and the tape would disappear. I'm assuming it was labeled correctly and put in this nice, you know, archival situation and learn to find out that that never happened. But uh, what we did find is uh, when we started this project, um, it was uh, a real discovery for me because, um, you know, everybody just opened up what they had. Well, here's all the file cabinets that we have, you know, the single copies of uh, programs in. So I'm like, okay, great. So I'm working with Nancy to fill in holes of things that she doesn't have for the Virginia programs throughout the years, program booklets. The closets is where I found all the videotapes. Uh, I didn't even know this closet existed on the third floor of Bennett Gordon Hall. But, uh, you know, I opened it up and I'm like, oh, there's all the tapes and the audio tapes. And they're just a massive pile of videotapes and duplicate tapes and uh, boxed, not by year, not by any, you know, they, they were rifled through and people were looking for things because we'd make copies for the artists and uh, so on and so forth. And then they would just toss them back wherever. So uh, that was uh, uh, the biggest part for me, putting that back together. But it was also very, uh, plus I found out that Ravinia had a basement under one of the buildings, which was very cool. And there's a lot of stuff housed there as well that we uh, were able to find things that we needed. The programs and the photos were usually, were in pretty good condition. The program books were all bound and kept in the publicity department in the main Ravinia building, along with a lot of the photos. So uh, I think we had a pretty good um, view of that. And uh, some of the photos that were donated later were working on digitizing. We got the um, negatives from the uh, one of the photographers that was hired by Ravinia, but he held the, the negatives to all the photos that he did. So now we've got those back and we're working slowly to get those digitized. Uh, it's a lot of work. Um, usually these things from the photographers aren't really, uh, they're, they're numbered by a numbering system that they know, but we don't. So it's a lot of guesswork in figuring out what date this was and who these artists or composers or what that evening was all about, but we're working on it. Getting back to the, uh, the Staines Institute, which is where I've been working all this time, uh, that was an important part of Ravinia, and we're, we're very lucky to have most of the pieces, pretty much all of the pieces, of everything that was uh, done there since its inception in 1988. Now, there's a difference between the Ravinia Staines Music Institute and uh, it's not really, um, they talk about children's music and uh, kids being introduced to music at Ravinia. Um, they do that through the Reach, Teach, Play um, arm of Ravinia. And that's a, a different set of uh, people that go out to schools um, all over, a lot in the city as well, and uh, introduce music to children. And uh, they used to bring them to Ravinia when I had first started in like the 90s they would have children bust in and they'd do their performance there and the parents would come and it was a big deal. We'd videotape some of those. However, we don't have those. Those went directly to the schools um, and they were for them to duplicate and hand to the parents of the children who were performing on those. But the Ravinia Staines Music Institute is for professional musicians who are on the young side, obviously some still in college, uh, some pass their master's programs and working their way into um, professional um, opera, orchestras, solo work. And uh, so we get a lot of fantastic uh, performances here at the Staines Institute. And, um, and that's what we've been working on um, since 1988. I did discover that in 1987, there was uh, master classes under the Staines banner held at Northwestern. Um, so we have those booklets. We don't have any uh, recordings of that, but there, there were things started back then. Uh, but basically, it started in 1988 with an emphasis on piano and strings. 
Later, they added voice, and then even later, they added jazz. So right now, the Sands Institute is a three-pronged venture where we start out with the Jazz Institute, then it goes to Piano and Strings Institute, then it goes to a voice institute. So there's three different disciplines of music, and they're all great fun to watch, uh, great fun to work at. Uh, all performances and master classes were recorded. So from 1988 to 2013, we have more than 1,000 VHS, SVHS, and DVCAM tapes uh, in our possession. And then from 2014 to the present, um, we have digital files that were recorded, which are um, on, you know, on hard drives in our possession and also offsite as well as uh, safety backups. So we're, we're good with that. Um, all tapes were, uh, like I said, found in uh, Bennett Gordon Hall. And uh, it was great finding them. And then luckily we did this during the fall and winter. So I had all the space on the third floor to just kind of spread stuff out across the floors and get them organized by year. But the unfortunate part is uh, labeling on VHS tapes, uh, the labels that came with them, not archival quality, those uh, uh, labels mostly fell off. So I was very carefully taking stuff out of boxes and, you know, taping them back on if I thought this is the one it went to, but then I had to go and check, make sure that was the right uh, information on the outside of the box or, you know, outside of the tape that was actually inside the tape recorded. So there was a lot of viewing and, uh, you know, stumbling around making sure that that was all correct. After that, Nancy helped me with uh, getting archival labeling and uh, with the help of uh, Ariel at uh, the Institute, I was able to print out uh, newer labels and make everything uniform and uh, make a permanent collection of videotape, video recordings, the original video recordings uh, that will be housed at the Staines Institute in the library. Um, luckily, we have a space for that. They've put uh, locking glass doors over the cabinetry so that they are uh, there and will be preserved. Uh, the reason we're, we're keeping the originals is um, the more I talked about uh, digitizing these and was talking to recording engineers and video engineers and even uh, the recording, um, the sound people at Ravinia, nine times out of 10, uh, the engineers would say, well, you're keeping the originals, right? And I always say, well, we're planning on it, but why? And they would say, well, digital formats can get corrupted. Uh, the software that reads the digitized information can go, you know, out of, uh, you know, favor. They don't, you know, we have stuff that was recorded on a Vela. I don't even know what anybody knows what a Vela is anymore, uh, but I can't read those. So I've got this piece of hardware, can't be read. So luckily we had backup uh, SVHS tapes for those. Um, but it is important to keep your original because as good as digital copies are, they're still copies. Keep the originals. Tape is very stable as long as it's kept in a good environment. So it doesn't take up that much room, uh, believe it or not. So uh, we have that all um labeled, ready to go, ready to be sent out to be digitized. About uh, a third of them have been so far. I'm working on the DV cams about to finish up very soon. And then we'll send those out for digitization, digitization as well. Um, so we have over 2,500 pieces that have been preserved on these tapes and files, um, and uh, which roughly constitutes about 510 concerts with 1,500 perform different performers uh, all represented on these years of videotapes that we have. Um, and we have a massive spreadsheet that has been kept over the years that lists all of the uh, music recorded by title, composer, performer. So I'll be using this to uh, put the metadata into all of the uh, videotapes 
um, information that will be, excuse me, let me shut that off. Um, that will be on the uh, um, Illinois State Archive. Uh, since I was directing the video for most of these performances, I can tell you some of the stellar highlights of things that were happening there. Um, so much of it is, is fantastic, and uh, you can view some of it actually on Ravinia's website because uh, it was used in the from the Ravinia Archives um, series this uh, past year when we couldn't have a Staines Institute, and so we couldn't uh, be um, broadcasting or cablecasting the uh, information or the uh, concerts that we were doing at the time. So they went back and uh, took some of these performances and actually put them back up on the internet. So people can view some of those just to get a taste of what will be available. Um, but uh, we'll be using all that information for the metadata. Uh, so anyway, since I was uh, at most of these, some of the performances, the one that stands out for me was a very surprising uh, two piano four hand uh, transcription of Stravinsky's Firebird. Uh, just blew us all away. It was one of those uh, performances that as it ended, uh, you know, we forgot to call, uh, you know, fade to black at the end of the tape, just kept rolling because we were all just like commenting on how great it was. So there's a lot of performances like that that will be available now to everybody um, who wants to take a look at them. Um, the other uh, performances that we did were master classes. Now, um, some people don't know what a master class is. In a nutshell, basically, uh, we had you know, professionals performing at uh, Ravinia, you know, on, on the main stage or in uh, the Martin Theater. And then they would come to a uh, class at the Staines Institute or teach a class at the Institute to some of the students who would come up on the stage, they'd perform part of a piece, and then the musician would come out and say, okay, try it this way. They'd kind of tweak things back and forth and then have them play it a little bit again and then correct them. So pretty much it was a one-on-one -on -one class with a you know, a luminary professional and the audience got to sit and watch this happen and the students benefited from their um, great tutelage. Some of the people that were in uh, these master classes that conducted the master classes were uh, Dane uh, Kiritakanawa, Frederica von Stad, Yo-Yo Ma, um, Leon Fleischer, Tokyo String Quartet, Thomas Kwastoff, uh, Maestros, uh, Christoph Eschenbach, James Conlin, among many, many others. Uh, one of my favorite uh, little stories of uh, Frederica von Stad, I believe, was uh, teaching a master class, and the uh, singer was, you know, standing by the piano as they always do, and she reached over and she put her hand on the piano, you know, and the lid, of course, is raised, and she immediately screams, stop, stop, stop. And the singer is like, okay, what did I do wrong? She goes, you touch the piano. As you put your hand on the piano, people are now not thinking about the song. They're not enjoying your song at all. They're thinking, when is the lid going to fall and crush your hand? So, you know, these are just some of the little things that they would be uh, imparting wisdom to the singers and the musicians and just letting them know that there are so many things that go into a great performance and you don't want to distract from it at all. Um, to complete the collection of uh, Staines Institute information, we have, uh, of course, a complete collection of the yearly program books and the individual programs that were handed out at each of the performances that will all be digitized as well. And I'm hoping to have those um, linked to the video performances so that as you're watching, you can possibly download the uh, uh, program booklet for that performance as well, just to make it more convenient. Um, so you don't have to search in two places. So fingers crossed we get this all done. 
and uh, very happy that this collection will be entirely complete and available worldwide through the Illinois State Library Archive. Yes. Thank you, Steve. Okay. Um, and thank you for like um, describing the stains. I did not have the right idea of um, what they are. And now I know it's, it's wonderful. It's important, important. Um, so thank you, Patrick Gibson, who is photographer at Nvidia, has posted some links to our SMI from the vault. That's great. Thank you, Patrick. Um, Mr. Lippitt said, wow, Orson Welles was local. Yes, he lived in Highland Park as a teenager. I'm just putting up small notes. I wrote a, um, a short article about it a few years ago during his centennial. And um, he actually wrote for three years um, a column and he would interview the opera singers who stay in the Maurice. He was living with a man named Maurice Bernstein, um, who is his, his guard, who ended up being his guardian. He was kind of kind of like um he was at Todd School for Boys in Woodstock. And what I do remember is um he was very critical of Gennaro Poppy, who is a great, great conductor. And he ran away with his um Mr. Bernstein's daughter. They, he was 13 or 14 and she was nine and they were missing for quite some time. But then they came back. So he, he was quite like, oh, we know, we know he's very well known. Um, does anyone else have any questions? Um, please ask or in the chat or ask me or Steve. Uh, thank Mr. Goldstein for sharing that about the fire. Um, that's a very popular history. Um, All right, and uh, you hadn't, hadn't mentioned the appearance of the New York City Ballet in the 50s and 60s. Very important presentation. It, she came, uh, the New York City Ballet came every summer, and Maria Tallchief danced on that stage. I remember seeing her because I had worked as an usher, and then I was the head ticket taker for the boxes at Ravinia at the Pavilion, and I saw Maria Tallchief dance. Ooh. Right. You know, we do have one picture from, I think I mentioned it from New York City Ballet, and it's post-1964, and I have not gotten copyright clearance to put it online yet, but we hope we will. So, yeah, it's very important. Dance is very important to Ravinia. Thank you for reminding us. Who, go ahead. I'm not. I can't see quite that is, but please oh, ask. Can you? Uh, it's Miriam Kell. Hi. I wondered if in the archives, if anyone had found anything like this in the archives. Okay, like it says, it's Ravinia 1918. M.J. Kelm. Okay. Um, we do have things from 1918. I'm, I'm quite sure. I quite know, but I'm, I'm going to find you paging through here up here. Um, uh, this is a, a ceramic plaque that a, a friend of mine found at an estate sale. Oh, now I see. I, I have seen that image. I've okay. seen that image in 1918. Because that, uh, the summer of 1918... My father was at the Great Lakes Naval Training Station, and as he put it, they took a busload of us boys down to Ravinia. And, you know, it was a lot of entertainment and stuff then, a lot of carnival-type stuff. But she knew that my father had been at Ravinia in 1918, and when she saw this at an estate sale, she bought it for me. And so That's I, lovely. you know, I just wanted to check if it was authentic or for something that somebody made up, you know, later. I, I do recognize the artwork from the programs. Um, they would use the same artwork that year on various programs. And they did. Um, we, you know, we, we didn't want to talk about everything here, but there was a camp called Gads Hill and there were fundraisers held 
in Ravinia for that, um, for boys. Um, and so there were busloads of children being taken there for music concerts. And they had other things too. They had the toboggan, they had a merry-go-round. So yes, and mm-hmm. Uh, Patrick Gibson stated that uh, we have the magazine cover, but not that beautiful item. I think that's what you were just holding up. Oh, the, yes. Yes. Yeah. This is a ceramic uh, plaque. I hang it on my wall. It has a cork backing and I hang it on. It's, it's, it was, I think they were used as hot pads, actually. What? I, I have, we, ha, we have some not from that year, but they did have Ravinia hot pads, you know, to put a trivet to put your hot things on yeah it. yeah it is like right your table trivet. yeah i have a poster of ravinia at 100 uh, years old ravinia under the stars i'm just uh, holding up the camera in my uh, bedroom that's oh yeah the poster 100 years 100 star years yeah, we do we do we have that poster as well i believe um but yeah it's they had competitions um again you know we, we didn't show everything that we've digitized in those but they had um, at various times competitions to um, design the posters, and I, um, I don't. And this, we have their marvelous sets, especially in the later half of the 20th century. Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. Uh, Gina wanted to know how long did it take to rebuild after the fire? Not long. They did not postpone their concert season whatsoever. They got tents. Um, and they had, were building by that within several months, they built this new theater. I don't think it was complete hundred percent, never changing, but they did not postpone the season and the fire was in May. And there were a lot of articles in the newspaper about it, you know, that, you know, we've got this tent company, we've got this, cause we have these people coming. So, um, it was, it was, they cleaned up pretty quickly. The next season it was, uh, the pavilion was built. Yes. Only the tent was one season. Mm-hmm. So did you watch it burn? Then you said you were five years old. That must have been scary. Absolutely. Because as I said, my parents were having a dinner party. My father called the, the fire department and we evacuated the house. The, the firemen came into Delta Road and sprayed the house. And um, I was put in a car from one of our guests and parked at the corner of Delta Road and Lincolnwood, and I saw the flames shooting up in the sky. And uh, as I said, the wind was coming off the lake, so it blew west. And if it had blown east, Brayside would have been burned to a crisp. And uh, after uh, the fire had been uh, controlled, my parents served coffee to the firemen. Hmm. Uh, What year was the fire and what buildings were destroyed? I believe um, 1949. I'm 46, I believe. Let's see. Okay, now we can do the math and know how old he is. Who, <laughs> <laughs> me? I have a cheat sheet here. 1949, you are correct. Um, May 14th at 9.54 p.m., the wooden pavilion burns down. On June 28th, the season opens as scheduled using a 33-ton canvas tent originally used to hangar B-29 airplanes. The million dollar trio of Rubenstein, Heifetz, and Piatarski performed. So there you go. And the new concrete pavilion was built in 1950 at a cost of $350,000 to seat over 3,000, whereas originally they called it 1,100 for the original seating. 
And I've always said that the Chicago Symphony played me to sleep because I was a young kid. I would go to bed at 8.30 or 9 o'clock and Fritz Reiner was conducting and I could go to sleep with that music. Wow. Okay, we have a multi-part question. Uh, is this direct, directed to Steve? What is the overall purpose of the digitiz- digitization effort? Well, basically, we're digitizing these things to make them available um, because this is from the uh, the grant was from the Illinois State Library. So this is all going to their website eventually. And actually, not eventually, it's just as we do it, it's being put on the website and it'll be available to anybody worldwide, basically who can, uh, goes into their website. Um, but since we have this information and these performances, it's ridiculous to leave them just sitting, you know, in the closet at Ravinia. Let's get them out there to people. Since we have the rights to do so, um, let's, let's do it. Um, and so, yeah, all the recordings will be available online. And then uh, there's also, they said, commenting on the source of the consistent, excellent graphic design programs. Nance, did you want to take that one? Um, well, there's a couple. It, it varies over more than 100 years. They hired professional art deco artists in the early 20th century that did the artwork for the programs. For the posters, um, they had competitions um, to create the artwork. And it is beautiful. It's beautiful artwork on itself. I'm, going, I'm trying to look at the question here so I get the... There were a couple different ad agencies um, that come up as doing excellent work. You can look at the back. Some of them are different, but I'm going to share screen again briefly. Um, and um, I closed that down. I'm sorry to say, but I'll open it. So in the archive, um, you can see if you look at the various programs, different um, organizations were hired to do these programs. And they're usually given recognition on the back or someplace for the artwork. Um, so if you were to say... Uh, program. I'm just program's going to bring up a lot, but to the park. I was I'm born so, and raised. I'm 98. Oh I'm my goodness! And raised about a block from the park. And some of the things that haven't been said about the park is that the we used to have this the famous circus there in the summertime, and it was fabulous. And then many many summers, you whether there was an opera there or <laughs> or anything going on, they played music and people came from all over with a, their blankets and their picnics and used the park as a wonderful place to to for family to go on the hot days of summer. But it, it was a, I worked there for a number of years on ticket sales and all that kind of thing, but <laughs> it was a great park and well run. Well, it's still there. It's still there. Um, and I noticed on the programs, and some of these sadly are not in great shape, but, you know, that's where people can look at them instead of having to worry they'll be held. It does not tell you who the artist is, but um, we have information on who the advertising companies they various use. And in fact, some of the correspondence from the 60s, I didn't include in the presentation because they were discussing the relative quality. Should we use this guy? Is he good? Is he not? Um, but it, they really put a high... Um, Emphasis on beautiful visual arts and, of course, Art Deco from the 20s is, is particularly striking if you look at and coming up to those years. But it, it varied because there were different associations. There were Vinny Company, there was the Chicago Milwaukee, then Ravinia Association, which has evolved to Ravinia, a different kind of association with the board and not-for-profit that it is current. Uh, will you be archiving and posting materials from non-performance events at Ravinia? such as the wonderful Best of the Midwest Market, 
1990s, I believe, and others? Well, you know, we're basing on what we have in the collections and what they're finding in Rubinia. And um, the, the ultimate goal is to describe everything in the collection and digitize very, a lot of it. But that's the, the, um, the ultimate goal is Rubinia archives, collaborations to preserve and provide access to the history. And I've not seen anything in stuff we have best of Midwest market, but uh, you know, it could pop up and certainly that would be made available if it was in the collections. Right. Especially you know what, that, that collection would very likely be like, well, Abby Mandel, who's gone to heaven, but the green city market, a lot of the people that founded the green city market were behind the best of the Midwest market. Um, um, yeah. I think um, if it wasn't spearheaded at Ravinia, it wouldn't be in our archives if they were using, you know, Ravinia property um, for you know, a, another event. Mm -hmm. We may not have that information. Mm -hmm. We might have ads that it was happening, but we wouldn't. Have and materials can be different places. What you know, we found that things get scattered. It might be an architect. Um, we were Ravinia was just working with a young author on his dissertation, and he had found drawings at a college special collections. Um, of the architecture drawings and someone who's involved with the Midwest market might've given them to another special collection. So it sometimes does depend where it lands, who owns it, who creates it, um, where some of these materials end up. And we're always trying to be proactive and, and, and seek them out and see if they're out there to get them in the archives so people can use them and research them. I live in New York, so I haven't been uh, up to date on uh, presentations at Ravinia. Have rock concerts ever been presented at Ravinia? Oh, absolutely. Oh, I could tell you my favorite thing I found in the archive that I can't digitize. <laughs> it's going through uh, the file cabinets in the basement, and I found a contract that was signed Robert Zimmerman, if you can guess who that is. Bob Dylan. Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, there were a lot of rock concerts at, at Ravinia and continue to be. Um, but those, of course, aren't uh, videotaped because, you know, of rights issues and whatever. But um, they, they will, of course, be in the uh, program books and things that are digitized, you know, announcements of these concerts. And if there are any photographs taken by uh, the, revision, the Ravinia photographer, they would be um, put in there as well. I, I, I'm going to read Patrick Gibson's because I think he has a good thing to say about getting some oral histories. But Steve and I talked about this earlier about recordings. Um, we do not, we are not aware, and Ravinia is not aware of extant recordings, which most inevitably were made of early Ravinia performances. And if, if, of course, if they did, they preserve them and make them available and, and digitize them. But that is something that people want to be on the lookout for. Um, and Ravinia is looking forward to maybe people finding them because it'd be great finds. Um, and copyright, sometimes issue two. And as far as rock concerts, now Janis Joplin was at Ravinia in the 60s. And there were in the collection at the Historical Society, there's letters to the editor, just people, oh my gosh, you know, it's just, we're supposed to be high class, you know, jazz rock. So, and, and now they have actually a, quite an interesting mix when they're open at Ravinia. So I'm going to read this. Patrick Gibson is the current photographer at Ravinia. And he's saying, I'm hearing so many amazing stories from neighbors and would love to interview anyone interested to get these stories on tape. Feel free to reach out to me if you're interested in sharing your stories, um, pgibson at ravinia.org. Um, and if anyone contacts me, I'll provide them with Patrick's email. And I'm sure um, if he would love to have, if you find something like an old wax cylinder of an opera at Ravinia, he would want to hear about that too, to say build their archives. When they played Ravel's Bolero, 
they had real canyon shooting off. I remember those cannons they brought in. It was something else to watch. I just thought I'd have to throw that in. Oh, that's great. So, you know, Stravinsky actually conducted too at Ravinia. Would you be interested in a little vignette that has always made me smile? Uh, There was a performance at which Mahler's eighth was to be performed and the conductor was ill. Yeah. And they had to hire a new conductor at the spur of the moment. And I guess an agent came up with this young kid named James Levine. And the story went that he had this conversation with Ed Gordon, who said, do you really feel competent to conduct this great symphony? And apparently the response was, would it make you feel any better, Mr. Gordon, if I tell you that I plan to do it without a score? Very. Thank you for sharing that. Very interesting. <laughs> Benny Goodman also had a Benny Goodman also had a wonderful program there that I can remember going to, and it really brought he had that part pretty well covered with people. I'll tell you, he did a great job. And he was local too, so um, he played with some um, trumpeter from Highland Park. I have someone just share a scrap a scrapbook trying to help um, ID. This band, local band, which was Benny Goodman and a, a young trumpeter from Highland Park High School. So it was local. Do you know anything about the uh, what I've heard that uh, there has to be a certain number of uh, classical concerts every year? And if they're not a certain number, uh, Ravinia reverts back to the previous owner? Now, that there was a contract to that effect many, many years ago um, with Mrs. Um, it was the widow of one of the major funders. And I'm going to look at right now. And there was talk that um, Mrs. Eckstein, when she deeded it, she said, the, if I recall correctly, it's music of proper quality. So um, there was that um, kind of implication, but that's long expired and that's not going to ever happen. And um and it wasn't written like classical or music by these composers or music in this period. It was good music, which of course is subjective. But there was a, there was there was um, a clause, a discussion that she wasn't going to give it the the land, Mrs. Eckstein. Of course, we didn't want to cover the whole Riveni history. We just wanted to give it, introduce you, and we have these histories online now. But um, she was it just they were so they, we don't want to become the, the Coney Island of the Midwest. That was kind of the phrase that was being heard that. As when one of the first receive when the first receivership when the North Shore um, people came together and bought it they were afraid of you know bringing the wrong kind of people to their park. So that is true. There was a clause in the thirties. How often has Ravinia not been open for a season like last year? I think From once what, before maybe. Um, they had a there was a year I believe it was nineteen oh nine where it was limited, but they had some events there. And it was 32 to 35 when there was no performances in the depression before when the Ravinia company folded and then the Ravinia association with the donations and primarily with the money from the Eckstein's um, was reestablished and reopened. Because I think this last year, we kind of recognized maybe more than ever before what the, the economic and social impact of Ravinia not being present. 
it had a lot of effect, and I'm very glad it re- it's been able to return too. Well, we lived in Iron Park, and Ravinia was a extraordinary source of our amusement, and and our life revolved around Ravinia Park, and the music programs were great. It wasn't open during. I'm curious, what was the source of the Eckstein money? You know, I don't recall. Um, I can look that up. He was very wealthy. um, And it was, let me look. I I can't answer that. I can take you. Who is that asking? Because I will find that out and I will email you to um, find that. Is it Mr. Lippitz or Mr. Goldstein? No, Michael Goldstein, yeah. I will will find that out. And I I don't recall at this point, but I know I've seen it in the programs. Referring back to his where his he worked, and I will find that for you. Okay, and I oh. took your phone number. I will call you at the library. Oh, uh, thank you. Yeah, I had a question. I probably for Steve on what you're looking for for archives. Um, this this is a tape recording of Ravinia concert in 1984, and I have my husband uh, who has passed. This lovely wooden box live from Ravinia had a number of these uh, tape recordings from the past in it. Is that the kind of thing that you're interested in or not? Those were probably commercially available. So, um, uh, or something that uh, if it was a, say someone that was uh, one of the fellows at the Staines Institute, um, they could order tapes of their performance. So uh, it could be one of those. Um, but if it's something like, uh, you know, James Levine conducted a, a set of albums that was uh, music from Ravinia was the title of it. And those are, of course, commercially held and uh, not available to us to archive because obviously I think they were on RCA. Uh, record, so they uh, have This just says uh, side A, 1984, volume two. There's nothing commercial on it. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder if that's uh, like a home recording someone made with their uh, uh, when they I were at. I don't know. This live from Ravinia. Ah. Does it say who's performing? Uh, in yeah, well, these are from 1984. The yeah, it's a James Levine piano, uh, and then. Yes, it does list uh, performers. Young Up Kim okay. doing Mozart, and it lists it lists all the performers on this thing. Yeah, that might be from the the album set that um, RCA put out of Levine's conducting um, recordings that were taped live at Ravinia, or called music from Ravinia. It does yeah, look like a pulled out from an album. Yeah. yeah. Program so. notes from uh, program notes are from like volume one, side A. Right. So it refers to these. That's published, generally, that would be published material. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. So that would be irrelevant for what you're looking for. Not irrelevant, but really what, what archives look for when they're doing actively collecting is our unique and primary materials. Um, so and sometimes it well, might be something that was printed like um, a wax cylinder, but it, it mostly primary materials are really what 
are they're looking for. And with music, with the many layers of copyright, it, is, it opens up a whole new, it belongs to whoever created it. Yeah, I can see how that would be. Yeah, it might say on the bottom of that book too, um, any copyright information or what company um, produced it somewhere probably in very fine print. Would it be at the back or? Possibly. It's biographies. How long do you think this process of this archiving is going to take, digitization? Well, with what we're doing right now, it'll be at least another year before everything's up and complete. Um, as far as the archives project, um, creating for Ravinia, I think ultimately it's going to be an ongoing project if if the program, and I think it will be, that you have an archives, you have a place for people to research, you have people to preserve it. So that's something that really is a living entity of preserving the materials and the culture of Ravinia. But um, as far as putting the stuff from this money, from this IDA, I, I, I envision it another year at least before everything is absolutely up. And we have to wait for the state too to, 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 with some things as well. Yeah, this is all from Ravinia. There isn't any other publisher or anything listed. Are you in Highland Park? Yeah, I live right well, up. Maybe you can contact us and I can get you in, in contact with Steve and Patrick or and look and see if this is something primary that's not available elsewhere. And um, we can talk about that. So there's a question. This is um, um, Ravinia and this is Steve and Patrick. It says, I'm... I'm Ultimately, are you actively looking for photograph submissions taken by attendees over the years? Um, just curious. I don't know that they have their collection policy completely formulated, but I will let them answer that. Are you going out and getting things right now like that? Or? Yeah, I, I think that would be a question for Patrick, I think, right now. Uh, Anything historic, he says, we'd love to see. Because it's always, you know, you can always ask. You know, it may be the answers, and that's in general for archives. It may be like, oh, we already have that. No, that's not what we're looking for. That's not what we collect. But it never hurts. You might have something that is very interesting to everybody and valuable in the long-term future, so you should ask. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd say, uh, again, uh, a lot of things, especially of a unique and unusual nature, uh, and the, the age has a lot to do with it, too. I mean, everybody, of course, has their cell phone pictures that they've taken, uh, since those have come out for concerts at Ravinia, but you know, if somebody's like father or mother back in the day has a picture that they snapped of, you know, Benny Goodman performing or Gershwin performing at Ravinia, yeah, why not? <laughs> you know, let's take a look at it. Or like you said, uh, recordings, live recordings that were done. Um, you never know what you're going to run across, and it's certainly worth uh, looking into. Have you thought about? doing, you know, the things that you've shown us, the pictures, et cetera, and some of the documents are very interesting. Have you thought about doing an exhibit in the exhibit space during the summer? Um, at we, the park. At the park. We would certainly assist with that. We did an exhibit at the old museum, the Highland Park Historical Society, 2000, when was that? Um, 2014, we had an exhibit and then there was a one before then, there's been several. So, um, but, but Ravinia, you know, I can't space, answer that. But now they have a space at the park. Oh, under, well, maybe you know, that's the space underneath the eating bar is for exhibits. I mean, the outdoor 
you know, eating thing where you go up the steps and and underneath there is exhibit space. Right. Oh, you're talking. Those are for uh, uh, curated exhibits that uh, Ravinia is posting. It just opened like a, a year or two ago. Right. Yeah. Yeah. On. Oh, I feel horrible. I can't remember the name of it. <laughs> I can't either. <laughs> yeah, but I work there. Um, it's, uh, it's it's a beautiful. It's like it's like a small museum space, and uh, they started out with um, uh, um, Bernstein. Uh, Bernstein. Bit, Bernstein. That's I was trying to remember. Really, really cool. Right. It was a great exhibit. Yeah, those are uh, curated exhibits that they're doing, and I'm sure there's someone um, at Ravinia if you had uh, you know ideas or uh, something in mind. Um, there's a person there that is running that um, museum aspect of it, and uh, but yeah, those are definitely uh, uh, curated because programs. The things that you out. had tonight would be appropriate for an exhibit there. I think we're hoping one of these days to get something big enough that that would be really cool. Is it possible it was called Ravinia Music Box? Yes, yes, thank you. Uh, it's somebody who typed in. Ah, yeah, probably my outsourcing is a big thing that's very helpful to us many times to artists and librarians and musicians. Yes. That was from an employee. Thank you, Hina. <laughs> <laughs> well, never mind. <laughs> it looks like we've uh, we've exhausted the conversation, or it could go on forever, which is. <laughs> right, I, I would have a question. The okay. Chicago Symphony played at the at Ravinia every summer. How did it finance it? I mean, did Ravinia pay to have the symphony or did the symphony rent the space? What, what was the relationship? It's interesting that you should ask that question because the answer is it varied. There are contracts, there were contracts, there's always contracts. In fact, I came across a contract, there's actually a contract online for one year. It, it, it depended on the contract in the year and it, it changed depending on the circumstances. And it's something that involves unions and contracts, and it's not the same from year to year. And I don't know what it is now, but I do know I came across a contract in the 60s um, for that. That is online in the digital archive. However, I think it's quite well understood that the rock concerts help to support the classical music that we love so much. That's, that's a lot of the funding comes from the rock concerts, which have huge crowds and was a major problem at one time in that area. Regarding the rock concerts, you refer to Janis Joplin. That was actually in July of 1970. Oh. And I was actually there. It was a full house. It was an outstanding concert. She was on the stage pretty much nonstop for almost two hours. Just an incredible concert. But it also created problems. And there was a lot of objection to having any further rock concerts at Ravinia after that because they didn't like you know, that type of attendee going through Highland Park and all that went with it. But um, she was a standout on that one and only concert. Right. And in fact, the mayor at the time, um, Geraci, who's recently passed away, he, mm -hmm. he was trying to find a way to ban rock concerts. And yeah. at that time, Highland Park was still dry. So that also yes. presented some some quandaries. Yes, and she was straight. I drive, you know, I'm just, it was, Highland Park did not um, allow alcohol sales till 72, I believe. So, although. At, at least. And 
And she, of course, was known for her uh, for her drinking. Added to her concert. It was great, though. Thank you for your uh, your work today, both of you. Thank you. And thank you. And this program was simulcast on our Facebook page. It will eventually be on YouTube, I imagine. And there will be a podcast probably up maybe tomorrow. Who knows? Maybe I'll stay up and take care of that. <sighs> happens. Well, thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks, Steve. Okay. Good night, everyone. Thank you. Okay, good good night. night. Thank you. This was wonderful. <laughs>